to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of a spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred texts, rooted in the earth, and lived through activist issues facing us today. All right, so to kind of to um, do a really bad job at introing this episode, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so today it's just going to be an a- Abby and I in the in the studio again, um, and uh, we're going to talk about um, we're going to practice a little bit of eco theology, um, and so some of our future seasons are going to be a little bit more eco theologically uh, intense. Intense? That's not the right word. Focused. Yeah, focused. Focused. Um, and so uh, we thought we'd do one episode this season of just practicing some eco-theology. And so what we what we wanted to do was talk about the gospel and the way of the earth. What how What is the gospel of Jesus Christ in context with the earth? And how what can we learn about the gospel and God from our understanding of the earth? So let's let's begin by simply talking about what is eco theology, <laughs> Abby. What is eco theology? I mean, I think eco theology, at least in the way I understand it, is perhaps applying like spiritual facets to our discussion of uh, eco criticism of of ecology um, and of the environment in general. Um, and allowing for those to intersect the environment and and spiritual concepts or, or spirituality. Yeah, so theology is the study of God, right? Right, and then eco is just throwing the earth into that equation as well. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the book of nature in regards to eco-theology? Yeah, so I think the book of nature is usually set up as kind of the alternative to the book of scripture, that there's this idea um, that the book of nature uh, is kind of the workings of the universe had there not been um, a God to organize it. Um, And ironically, I think sometimes uh, these two have intersected throughout history. whether planned or not, uh, through different, you know, uh, theologians or, um, even scientists who have, who have come before, um, and tried to parse out the differences, um, or at least, you know, understand, uh, the workings of the universe, either from a whole, holy, um, spiritual perspective or kind of a, a, holy scientific perspective. Right. And so I think the book of nature tends to follow the course of the, the latter that it is, um, something of, of scientific basis that, um, you know, the, the world is constructed based on these, uh, kind of biological matters, geological matters. Um, and that it's different from one that was potentially created by this omniscient presence, uh, of, of Christian theology or, or other types of theology. I'm just remembering that it was kind of Galileo who was like, Oh, the, like 
the cosmos can also um, be like a representative of of God that um, that like we first find God through nature. It's like when he was standing on trial from the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, and that and that like nature is doctrine. Yeah, right. Um, I think another perspective on the book of nature, um, is comparing it to the Bible. So I've obviously have talked a lot yeah. about Richard Rohr uh, and the Franciscan tradition in the Catholic church. They regard the universe as the first Bible. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Bible Bible is the second Bible that it's written by human hands, but the first Bible is the universe itself. And that, it, you know, humans have only been on the scene for like what the last 200,000 years or so, give or take, uh, you know, a hundred thousand years or so. Um, and, uh, you could ask the question, if the universe is 13.7 or 8 billion years old, what was God up to <laughs> all that time, yeah. right? That it, what was he just like twiddling his thumbs until humans showed up on the scene to be able to appreciate what he, you know, what he'd done and that he could actually have someone to talk to. And so the Franciscan approach is to say, no, that God, God is a incredibly patient, but also B that he was sowing truth into the fabric of the universe for billions upon billions of years. And that yeah. we can read the universe as though it were a text to understand God. Yeah, I think that's really interesting um, also to kind of consider is is the idea of reading the universe like a text um, because in some ways it does follow kind of like a, a biblical perspective if you really want to um, maybe follow some lines of scripture like that we are given um, revelation line upon line, precept upon precept. I mean, if you think of evolution it kind of functions in that way <laughs> yeah. that it's not all at once. Like the things that are on this earth did not, were not simply placed here all at once. Yeah. Um, that they were kind of molded and constructed over time, line upon line, precept upon precept, you know, these, these little changes that happen over, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years even. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's something that I really, so, I mean, even like, let's say, you know, just as a micro example, if we're going to re read the universe as a text, 13.7 billion years is a really, really inconceivably long time. And humans have only really been on the scene the last, like I said, 200, 200, 300,000 years. Right. And humans that have been able to maintain a culture uh, of, of, of writing and agriculture really maybe the last 10, seven to 10,000 years. Right. right. Um, so to me, what that illustrates is God's immense patience and that we really have no idea what, when, you know, when the scriptures say that God is patient and long suffering, we really don't have any conception of what that means because 13.7 billion years is a radically long time. It's very yeah. deep time. Yeah. I don't even know how to conceptualize. Quantify that? Yeah. <laughs> like past, even, even like thousands of years uh, just considering humans like 2000 years ago really kind of blows my mind and how that was even possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like we've all been to the, you know, the museums or whatever, when right. they try and like, Oh, here's a, here's a, here's a pile of a million beans. And then here's a pile of a billion beans. Right. And to really like quantify that visually is, is staggering. Um, let's see, there is, let me, let me find it. So I think why 
this conversation is so exciting for me um, is because what, what I hope to do is to, you know, this entire season, we've kind of been talking about regrounding our faith in the stuff of the earth, right? It's right. about reconnecting or, or at oneing and reconnecting ourselves with the earth and with everything around us and with each other and ourselves and God. Um, and this is exciting for me because what I want to do with this is ground the stuff that we believe as Christians in the stuff of the earth and not just, not just, you know, we've kind of been, we've kind of been talking around the gospel, right? We've, we've been talking around the gospel the entire uh, season so far, but this is where we actually get to the heart of it. Um, ultimately, I think why it's important to connect the gospel to the earth is so that we can start seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christianity at whole as a natural religion. And by natural religion, I, you know, I, I don't know what, what what comes to your mind when you when you hear natural religion, Abby. I think of a God who, well, I mean, even yesterday, something that we studied for "Come Follow Me," um, and you know, the LDS kind of uh, workings of of right now um, is the idea of the law, um, and that God Himself has subjected Himself to the law, so mm-hmm. He follows that law. Um, and I was thinking, you know, that's so unlike. Greek theology or or mythology, I guess, um, where you have all these gods who set in place this kind of moral law, um, but then they don't follow it or they're not subject to it. Um, And how different that would feel, you know, that we're subject to this kind of uh, justice that they enact, but they don't actually follow. Yeah. Um, And it, it would be so unpredictable. But I feel like a God who's established in a natural um, kind of pattern or law, um, maybe not, maybe predictable isn't the right word, but, but, um, that there's an order to things and that even though there's kind of this natural chaos that exists in the world, um, that nature establishes the patterns, um, and that God is also subject to those patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, and it also establishes the idea that everything has a purpose and a place. Yeah. Um, because it's functioning inside of that, that kind of natural, um, law or perspective. Right. So I think that's really fascinating to consider. Yeah. No. So I think if, uh, if we were to bracket just religion by itself, I think what, what, at least for me and what I worry a lot of people just think of religion as a purely constructed human idea right? It's purely constructed human, uh, infrastructure and social tools yeah. to be able to like control people or whatever. And that our social, that our spiritual beliefs about these things are also disconnected from the world, right? right. They exist without context. Um, and, and that, so if we were to, to put the word natural in there, natural religion is that our spirituality is predicated on natural patterns and natural forces that are at work in the universe already that we can observe with our eyes and we can experience with our bodies and that we can, we can extrapolate our own spiritual and religious beliefs from there. And to me that feels so much better because it's not, it's not arbitrary. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that, that there's a lot of fear, at least in the LDS culture, I think there's a lot of fear or at least some anxiety about how it feels like some commandments seem pretty arbitrary. I mean, in fairness, some of them do seem pretty arbitrary. Um, but, uh, this arbitrariness doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't let us trust or it, it hinders our capacity to trust and tr- to trust God. I yeah. think. 
Yeah. And I feel like it, I mean, quite literally is grounding us Mm. in something, um, within the universe that's separate from the institution of the church. Right. So it's like this idea of, um, I don't know, like spirit of the law versus letter of the law that like we live through this spirit of the law that's already kind of foundationalized through the literal workings of the, of the earth versus something that's established by the institution. Um, and not that those are to be, uh, considered better or worse necessarily, but that it gives us the opportunity to truly live with the earth. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, if we were to compare like the spirit to the natural, to the letter, to the institution, that's kind of like how planes fly because of the natural laws of aerodynamics and gravity, Mm -hmm. but the institution is flight control. Right. Right. That's, or kind of organizing all this together anyways. Um, and so, uh, I, uh, I've always been struck by there's this, uh, this few verses in doctrine and covenant section 88, and we've referenced section 88 a number of times, uh, particularly in our last episode with Dan Witherspoon. Um, and, uh, verse 25, 26 and 27, uh, give us a key, uh, into what this pattern. So if we're talking the natural, natural religion is, is finding patterns in the real world in the natural flowings of nature and be able to extrapolate from there our own spiritual practice. Um, I think Dr. Covenant section 88 verses 26 through 28, um, give us, give us an insight onto that. So 26 says, um, where, uh, or 25 says, and again, verily I say unto you, the earth abideth the law of a celestial kingdom for it filleth the measure of its creation and transgresseth, transgresseth not the law. Wherefore it shall be sanctified. Yea, notwithstanding it shall die. It shall be quickened again and shall abide the power by which it is quickened and the righteous shall inherit it for notwithstanding they die. They also shall rise again, a spiritual body. Um, and so I've, I've always kind of been struck by this verse 25, where it says the earth abideth the law of the celestial kingdom. Um, because that kind of makes my imagination go wild that it's like, oh, the earth has been given its own law and it's a, a bit like it's obeying God's commands in its own way and yeah. enough so to merit, you know, the, the, you know, the, a place in heaven or being heaven itself. Right. <laughs> um, and so, but, but verses 26 and 27, tell us what it is that law that it's following. It says, wherefore it shall be sanctified notwithstanding, um, or because it shall die and it will be quickened again. And, uh, it shall abide the power by which it is quickened. And in 27, it says, and notwithstanding they die, the people who are inherited die and shall also rise again. And so this, it's this cycle of life, death, and resurrection is the, is the law that the earth obeys. Mm -hmm. And that's, essentially the core of what I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And that's at the heart of what I want, uh, we're, what I hope we can tease out today as a natural religion. I also think it's really interesting to think about, um, I, I don't know that idea of for fill it, filleth the measure of its creation and transgresseth not the law. Um, like the earth is subject to the law, Right. Um, and it's interesting that, that there's that filleth the measure of its creation. We're not fulfilling it for yeah. it, that it also has its own purpose. 
Um, and that like that happens, it shall be quickened. It shall be sanctified. Um, that, that that's happening to the earth independent of, of, you know, the things that we do to Mm -hmm. the earth as well. So we have to, just like we have to fulfill the measure of our own creation, allow the earth to fulfill its. Um, and I think that's interesting. Not that those two should be separated, obviously, because I, I wholly believe that humans also belong on this earth and are part of it. But I, I think that's a really interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what I think this, this does, uh, what I'm, or part of what I'm hoping to tease out here is that I think we got, we get caught in a trap as, as Mormons and as Christians in general of thinking that the gospel is something that we believe. It's an external thing that we have to believe, right? We have to believe that, that Christ is our savior. We have to believe that, you know, that the church is true. We have to believe that the book of Mormon is the word of God, right? And it's this external thing that I have to believe these things in order that I can be blessed or that I can, you know, be obedient. Right. Um, but what I, what I see and what I've experienced in the world is that the gospel is not something that I believe, but it's a way of practicing life. It's a way of handling life and it's a way of living life. Um, and so that, that to me is the most intriguing thing, because if we're going to say that the law that the earth obeys and abideth by is this cycle of life, death, and resurrection, then, then that's ultimately what I have to live as well. Yeah. In thinking about the gospel as a way of life, as opposed to just something a preset package of beliefs that I have to accept. Yeah. Or, or something. I think we externalize it a lot, kind of like you said, Mm -hmm. but beyond even externalizing it, like placing it beyond this world. Mm -hmm. So I am going to live this gospel so that I can get to the next arena of resurrection. But like we tend to kind of accelerate, um, that aspect of, of life. Um, and instead of actually enacting it as something that we do presently. Um, and so I think maybe that's one way that it, it presents itself as being a benefit to us in thinking of it as a way of life, as opposed to simply just like a a gospel that we accept and then have to, um, uh, you know, live out until the next aspect of, of the gospel, which right. would be death and then resurrection. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people, um, well, myself included, uh, have previously were farsighted mm-hmm. with our approach to the gospel. Um, that if, you know, if I can, if I can suffer it here, how great will be my reward there. Right. There's yeah. even that scripture of, if you bring how many people to me, you know, to the gospel now, yeah. how great will be your reward in the world to come? Like, I really think that that a lot of people get high centered on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they just think, oh, I just, if I just suffer through this life, you know, I'm going to have such a great reward in the yeah. next one. I was just thinking about how we, we so often say like, oh, this life is a test. Mm-hmm. Like mortality is a test. And that may be true, but I think we do ourselves a disservice by thinking of it simply as a test that it's like not something to be enjoyed because who likes a test or not, not, not something to be enjoyed, but rather um, not something to like be fully present in that it again, is just something to endure. Well, yeah. I mean, I would say I don't even like thinking of life as a test, right? Yeah, because no, I don't. If, if, if life is a test, 
life is ultimately about something else. Yeah. When I think that life ultimately is self-referential, life is about itself. Yeah. Right. And the, the gospel is about right now. Yeah. It's not about something in the future. It's not about, well, on some level it is about the past. Um, but it's, it's, it's reframing and healing from the past so that we can live right now better. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think that also kind of lends itself to this idea of another thing I think we get caught up on is this idea that mortality is like a blip on the scale of eternity. Yeah. But it's interesting because this blip is supposedly what determines like our state (laughs) for the rest of eternity. Right. And so I think that's another thing that we have to be really careful about is if, if we're so caught up in that idea, um, then these gospel principles become kind of, uh, suffocating, um, as opposed to something that can enhance our life, enhance the ability for us to see God's presence, enhance our ability to understand the way he maneuvers within our life. Um, and that those aren't only, um, you know, found within very spiritual things, but if, if we are able to ground this in, in the earth or, um, you know, allow its presence to be in the present, then it, it takes on a whole new meaning and it's so much more easy to see it every day as opposed to something that again is far away, is out of this world, um, and doesn't feel very present to us right now. It's something that we have to achieve or eventually arrive at. Yeah. No, I, uh, I have been frustrated by people who, I mean, there is something to be said for a study of deep time, right? We were just talking about how, how humans have only been around for, you know, an X amount of years mm-hmm. and the universe is billions upon billions of years old. Right. So there is something to be said for an appreciation of deep time and that, that our existence is literally like a blip in geological time. Yeah. However, that being said, that is a piss poor way to live your life with that frame of reference all the time, because it, it it like, it doesn't allow you to kind of rest into the depth of your own existence and the joy of your own existence because you're living for something else. You're not living for right now. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. I don't want to live a life and I don't think God wants us to live a life that feels like suffering. I mean, why would he have created a beautiful earth. (laughs) Like, I mean, I know that's maybe overly simplistic, but I think like, why would there be so much beauty on the earth if life weren't to be enjoyed? Right. If it were to be a miserable suffering. If it was to be a a miserable suffering housecape of an existence, we'd be all be living on Venus right now and not on earth (laughs) because Venus is not a fun place to live. (laughs) Or Mars. Or Mars. I really don't. SpaceX is canceled. (laughs) (laughs) We're canceling SpaceX right now. What we call the what we call the gospel um, ha- takes on a lot of names, right? So there's this universal pattern of order, disorder, reorder, or you can call it life, death, and resurrection, or you can call it day, night, day, or you can call it spring, summer, fall, winter, right? It's this it's this continual cycle of entropy and regeneration, and entropy and regeneration, mm-hmm. and the spiritual word that we have for that is gospel. 
Um, at least that's, that's my impression of it is the spiritual, uh, our spiritual word for it is gospel. Um, how did you arrive at the connection between that? 100% Richard Rohr. It was not me. Um, he's got this awesome book called the, the wisdom pattern. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially about this, that this pattern is the wisdom pattern and that this, uh, and that, that, Ultimately, what we see in Christ, what we see in the life of Jesus Christ is he, he lived, he died and he was raised again. Right. Mm, And he was telling, uh, he was telling people all over the place that they needed to die before they died. And this isn't like they're, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, the hallmarks of the, the wisdom traditions of, or the mystical traditions of the world is this idea that you need to learn how to die before you die. And that idea is, is common in Christianity too. That's the whole whole baptismal ordinance, right? Is this, it's a simulation of death and then it's a simulation of resurrection. Um, and that what Jesus was always teaching people was that, you know, unless a single grain of wheat dies, um, it won't right. It won't, you know, create a harvest. And so he was constantly telling people, you need to, some part of you needs to die right now before your body actually dies so that you can live a new life right now while you're still alive. So you can be resurrected early. So like Adam Miller has that book, An Early Resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's what it's about. It's about teasing out this, this wisdom concept of dying before you die in using our own Mormon language and Mormon beliefs. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure our listeners understood. Thank you, Abby, uh, for grounding me. Um, yeah, so let's talk about, let's talk about, uh, each one of these, these three stages, um, so that we can actually like put some, put some meat on it, put some dirt on it. Uh, Let's start with order. When you think of order, like what were some things that you, you think of? So I think, uh, I mean, if we're really talking about patterns, yeah. Um, the order of seasons, um, to everything, there is a season, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, if we're thinking about life as being one of the seasons, then naturally that would be spring mm-hmm. when everything is coming to life. Um, but at the same time, like, I guess that could also be resurrection too. Right. Spring yeah. could represent both, um, or summer being, you know, everything is alive. Yes. Um, don't have allergies as much. <laughs> the pollen has gone. But yeah, I think the idea of seasons as being representative of life um, and that natural order that seasons follow to that right. every year we can expect, at least in Utah where we have four seasons, four seasons, <laughs> maybe a fifth one in there with um, yeah. the the weird in between winter, spring yep. season that we we're get, in We currently. get like a second winter sometime <laughs> in April. Yeah. Yeah. Second winter tease spring. Um, but I think again, these, these very distinct seasons that are in place where we have summer, where everything's alive, Mm -hmm. um, and things are budding and blooming, uh, or have bloomed and, and now are kind of in a consistent state of life in fall where they dry up, die, um, or hibernate, you know, and then winter, uh, where everything appears to be dead it's a season of death or is dead <laughs> or has died. Um, and then spring regeneration yeah. of all of those things, it's a resurrection, um, as being, you know, that, that resurrection. So yeah. I think that's kind of an easy way to, to see that pattern yeah. at least. And yeah, 
I mean, you can see this in like, you can see this in the water cycle. Yeah. Right. That I'd say, uh, order right now, a wa water by itself is highly ordered, right? When yeah. it, when it freezes, actually, I don't know when it's, when it freezes, it's even more ordered. Right. Yeah. But then it, it, it melts, it becomes really disordered. Then it evaporates into the sky and it becomes even more disordered. Um, and then when it condenses and starts raining again, it is, it's remaking itself on some level, right? So it's regenerating. Um, you can see this in composting yeah, in soil, right? And so like if, you know, like plants, so like we were just talking about how plants, right? That, uh, you know, during the, during the fall, the foliage kind of dies back, all the, all the leaves fall to the ground. Right. Um, and then the soil accepts the death of the world, uh, and transforms that death yeah. back into life through awesome, crazy decompositional processes that are really staggeringly beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then, then it creates new soils that new life grows out of. And oftentimes even stronger life because of the nutrients that were provided exactly. in that soil yeah. that have been broken down. So like even, uh, you know, a more intense version of this is let's say a forest is yeah. order. Fire is a lot of disorder. So a forest fire and boy, golly, has America been on fire the last yeah. <laughs> five years, however. Um, and, uh, then inevitably there is the fire releases nitrates and, uh, and new nutrients out of the organic matter of the forest. And even seeds, serotonous cones that yeah. literally don't drop their seeds unless they reach a certain temperature. Yeah. So I, cause, so I remember a couple summers ago, I was driving back from camping one time and Spanish Fort Canyon had uh, been just decimated by a fire, uh, you know, in the early summer, but coming back early summer, I don't know. Anyways, but I was coming back and these Hills were just black, but in the evening light, there was, you know, in the even the, the way in the, the evening light, like will go through leaves and grass and stuff and just like light it up. Mm -hmm. These hills were just lit up with this golden green color with this backdrop of black. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Interesting. It was so pretty. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to think about, uh, forests, especially, um, because obviously like fire can be extremely damaging to a forest, but like we said, in some cases it's, almost necessary, um, in order to allow the forest to kind of regenerate in that yeah. way. Um, and I think of, you know, that, that theological principle of being refined, um, or, or rather the refiner's fire, uh, that even nature kind of exhibits this tendency, um, to be refined or regenerated, uh, through fire. And that's, again, goes back to that idea of the book of nature where, our, our understanding of theology can first, you know, and, and God can first be found through nature. Um, and that, you know, these principles are exhibited throughout nature as well. So to put some, some humanness on these ideas, right? Because yeah. the examples we've been using so far are purely just found in nature, but in order to see ourselves in the, in this pattern, um, I would say that order in a human sense looks like certainty, yeah. right? That, I mean, how many of us in our, you know, I know, 
I love certainty. Our egos love certainty. Mormons love certainty in our, you know, we want to know without a shadow of a doubt (laughs) that the book of Mormon is true or the church is true or whatever. Right. We want to know with a certainty. Um, and I'd say the disorder or death looks like uncertainty. It looks like doubt. It looks like, it looks like being unsure. And it, it looks like having some anxiety about what we, what we used to believe formally. And then the resurrection is new paradigms, new truths, new ways of holding. It looks resurrection is, is wisdom being able to hold contradicting things together, um, without anxiety. Uh, and so the, this, this pattern, this resurrection pattern, this gospel pattern, um, I think what, what I want to be able to call it is it's a, it's one of the forces of nature. You know, we might call it, we might dress it up with language of thermodynamics or entropy and regeneration. Right. But I would like to believe that this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a force of nature. Wow. Which is really fun to think about. Yeah. That's a really powerful (laughs) framing way of framing it. Yeah. I think especially, um, and I think it's, it also allows us to kind of tie it back to what we were talking about earlier um, and this idea of uh, emphasizing our life here on earth mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if we're able to kind of implement that cycle here on earth, then it places greater opportunity for us to learn from, right. from that uh, cycle or, or putting ourselves through that refinement of, of, you know, certainty uncertainty. Right. Um, and then refining that through that kind of liminal space. Yeah. Cause ultimately that is what repentance is. And I know we're going to, yeah. we're going to go through faith, repentance, baptism, Holy ghost, and enduring to the end at the, at the tail end of this. Um, but essentially that's what repentance is, is right. it, it's, it comes from the Greek word, Greek word, Greek word, metanoia, which means new mind. It means it, it's not about it's less about sin and it's more about changing the way that you operate and see the world and view the world. Um, we also know that gospel, the word gospel itself is means good news. It's the good news. Right. Right. And, uh, so I think if I were to take a stab at what is the good news of this is the, the good news is that if trusted, this cycle means that, that dead things come back to life, that life and reordered life and resurrection lies on the other end of death. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what the hell is. <laughs> yeah. I, I take comfort in knowing that that's possible in this life that, and that that cycle is accessible, not just through a single repetition, right? Mm-hmm. That even though Jesus kind of exhibited that um, in his lifetime, that we can, uh, condense that and yeah. continue to enact it every day because of what he did. Yeah. Right? The, the resurrection is not just, it doesn't have to be just this magical event that it will happen in the future. Right? right. But the resurrection is a way of practicing life right now mm-hmm. that, you know, every day I wake up and I like, I'm, I can be a new person that resurrect, you know, resurrection is another word for change. And that that's the most magical property of the universe is that we can change. We don't have to be what we were yesterday. Right. And that we can, we're not, we're not, we're not damned to forever repeat our mistakes forever. Right. And that if trusted, and that's the key word, trusted, trusted yeah. if we can lean into this cycle of, of life, death and resurrection, we can be made new again every day. And that like, even I, you know, Abby and when, when we were, uh, 
discussing the, uh, you know, the outline for this episode, I, I referenced that the, the pandemic itself, or maybe was it our conversation? I don't know. I was having a conversation at one point <laughs> and, uh, that the world before the pandemic was order. Mm-hmm. The pandemic has been nothing but disorder. Right. And then whatever is on the horizon after, you know, herd immunity has been achieved through vaccination efforts. That's resurrection, right? That I, I think our society will never be the same. Right. right? And so that if we can lean into this process and accept that the world that we had before the pandemic, it's gone. Gone. It's gone. Yeah. And I, I, I do think that's true. And I think we're all learning, you know, the value of empathy, the value of connection with other individuals. Um, and, and that we need that as well. Um, so I definitely think you're right that there's something on the other side of this that's perhaps better, um, than how we entered it. Isn't that so cool though? Like I'm really excited, like to have a Jubilee year where it's just like everything I've, I just, you just took for granted, right? Just like having brunch with friends. Right. (laughs) I'm just going to, I already feel like a small (laughs) element of that. Every time I go to my family's house for dinner, now that we're all vaccinated, I just feel this comfort in knowing okay, one year ago, I couldn't see my, I couldn't go see my parents Yeah, and in person, they lived 10 minutes from my house, but yeah. I couldn't physically go see them. And now I just take so much comfort, um, and won't take that for granted again, Yeah, going to dinner to their house and we've been remade with them. Yeah. It's so a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. And I mean, the atonement resurrection is a beautiful yeah. thing. I think a lot of the times I get kind of scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was talking to my mom about this, um, my mom and sister. And I mean, as scary as it kind of seems, the millennium and all yeah. the things that will happen, again, it'll be that kind of disorder. Yeah. But on the other side, there's so much potential for, yeah. you know, growth and and happiness and newness that will come from it. Yeah, I think you, you bring up a good point though, that there is some fear and anxiety. And I think what, what trusting this cycle looks like is it means honoring that fear. Yeah. Right. I mean, I remember a year ago, we were all scared to death. Yeah. And this pandemic has killed a lot of people. Right. And we need to honor that it has not been, you know, it's been ugly in a lot yeah. of ways. And that, and that that's really the real magic of the universe is that from as, and as ugly as, and painful and as hard as things have been, um, that good things can come out of it. Right. And that, and that that's not to like paper over or to like, you know, brush rainbows over all the sadness, but it's that, no, if we can actually live through that sadness and honor that sadness, goodness can come out of it. Right. This begs the question though. If we're grounding the gospel, this universal pattern in the, in the stuff of the earth, right? This, this universal pattern that we see that the earth exhibits and that we can live through. What is the usefulness of the institution of the church? <laughs> Cause there, there, there exists this tension then. Right. Cause the, to me, I don't think the church owns the gospel. Yeah. I don't. And I don't think we claim, I mean, I think we claim to have the whole gospel, Mm-hmm. But I, I like the idea that the church kind of allows the gospel to be present. I shouldn't say allows it. 
I like, <laughs> I like that the church is able to recognize that they do not have the monopoly on all truth. Um, that like there's still truth present in in other religions too. Yeah, and I'm only corking my head to the side because I think that, um, I think that us as a people we have a hard time with that. Yeah, I do. that I think I think we believe that, but I'm not sure we believe it. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind sense? of it goes back to that idea of like, uh, what is it? Catholics are supposed to believe that the the Pope is infallible, but yeah. they believe he's fallible, yeah. and then uh, Mormons is, are supposed to believe that their prophet is uh, fallible, but they only believe he's infallible. I don't yeah. know that that's necessarily true again, but it kind of reminds me of that yeah, idea. Yeah. Um, but I. I think it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe some people don't, <laughs> but I think we should maybe reemphasize that that is true and yeah. that we've been told that that's true as well. Yeah. The Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was really, um, he was pretty uh, keen on that. What Mormonism was, was is an openness to truth. Mm-hmm. It was a stance towards truth. It wasn't necessarily holding all the truth. It was a it was a a way of holding truth. Yeah, and I think we can look at Joseph Smith as a really good example of that too. Yeah, because our gospel would not exist if truth did not already exist on the earth. Yeah. prior to that, because he was the great he would gatherer. Not have, yeah, and he would not have asked God. Yeah, if that if other you know churches or yeah. um, theology had not post that to him, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think, I think we're, we're a little bit silly if we think (laughs) that we have the monopoly on all truth. Yeah. And, and not just all truth, but we would, it's, it's vanity, vanity to believe that we have a monopoly on the gospel. Right. Right. Because if, if our premise is, or if our argument is that the gospel is a force of nature, it's almost as silly to think that we could control gravity. Right. Of course we can't control gravity, right? Mm-hmm. We can just utilize its properties in order to fly. And, you know, Boeing might have patents on certain <laughs> wing types or whatever, right? But that but that the gospel is is a part of this universe and to believe that you can only access it through the walls of this the four walls of this institution, like I don't know, that seems like a little bit of hubris to me. Right. But to go back to your question yeah. as well. I think that the institution of the church is also necessary because it goes back to that cycle that mm-hmm. we've been talking about in that in some ways it allows us to organize that, that understanding right. that um, we can have a, a sense of organization of certainty. Um, and, and I feel like it also goes back to that idea of spirit of the law established first um, through the earth, through creation, through yeah. the gospel um, but then that letter of the law that's implemented um, to help us better understand how to access the spirit of the law. Yeah. And and that those are not um, like mutually exclusive or, yeah. or um, you know, that I follow the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. No, yeah. that's not the case. They go hand in hand. Um, and I think that's maybe one way of looking um, at the benefit of the institution of the church. Yeah. I mean, I set up a little bit of a false dilemma because I really don't think, I mean, but just, just so that we could kind of uh, see some of the complexity because I don't actually believe that. I mean, it's a false dilemma, right? You don't. Yeah. Anyways. Um, But that I think it, 
I kind of like the Eugene England. He had this essay called why the church is as true as the gospel. And essentially what, uh, he, he comes down on is that the institution of the church, while the gospel itself is, is way bigger than the church, the institution of the church is a, is a school ground where we can practice Mm -hmm. the gospel with each other. And that it's where we can have a common goal with people who we don't see the world the same as, and we can working together, it rough stone rollings us, right? It, it smooths down our, our hard edges and it, it helps us along. It helps us develop gifts, you know, the, the gift of compassion and of charity mm-hmm. when we work towards common goals with people that we, don't, that we that obviously we don't, agree, don't with. agree with. Um, and, uh, that I think that's what the, the purpose of the institution of the church is, is to provide a school ground for us to do that. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about this this morning actually, because, um, I, I'm very close with uh, some people that do not see the world in the same way that I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I, I kind of get caught up in this idea of how, how do we believe the same things on a gospel level or, you know, how are we part of the same church? Right. But at the same time, you know, if I turn that around, I, I, I understand it differently that, wow, isn't it amazing that we can believe the same things or believe in the same gospel and have such different perspectives on how we reach that end goal. Yeah. Um, But that we're all working towards potentially the same goal um, with regards to, you know, accessing God and, and accessing the atonement and resurrection as well. Yeah. You know, we can actually see a corollary to, you know, do the whole book of nature thing. We can see a a corollary to that in the natural world that, uh, there's this thing called convergent evolution. And that's why convergent evolution is, is the reason why sharks and dolphins look so much the same yet. They share very little common ancestry. It's the reason why, Insects can fly and birds can fly, and yet their wings are so very different um, that they're working towards a common goal, but finding different paths to that same goal. Uh, and so that's why like nature has, has evolved three or four different kinds of wings, three or four different kinds of eyes that nature has this way of, of putting some kind of like a gravitational magnet of, you know, like we're going to create an eye. Let's see how many different ways we can do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in the church, it's like, we're going to work towards this common goal of building Zion. Let's see how many different ways, how many different pathways we can get there. Yeah. And I, that. and that like that also goes back to some very fundamental things that we believe in as in human agency mm-hmm. as well. And that God's not limiting us in our agency where he doesn't want us all to take the same path no. to get there. Um, but yet he wants us all to have sight if we're using, you know, these, these, um, examples of evolution that, um, he does want us to arrive at that conclusion. He's not limiting the ways that we get there or or telling us exactly how that needs to be done. In fact, that was Satan's plan. That was. And so, um, I think we should kind of relish in that, in the beauty of that and, and allow that to take its course. And, and evolve in our lifetime using and accessing this cycle that continues to refine us and allow us to arrive at that final goal. There is, I do want to revel in it, but there's also another part of me that is just like, oh, damn, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Because that means that I need to, I need to let go. I need to surrender. Yeah. My ideas about what's, 
what's exactly right and yeah. what's exactly wrong, right? It's, the exact, you know, the exact way to walk this path. I need to surrender those ideas. It's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah. But I, and I think again, that comes back to something I appreciate at least in, um, kind of the way that the church isn't forcing us as an institution um, and telling us how to vote or, you know, that they're at least trying to protect our agency in some I think ways. institutionally maybe, but culturally there are pressures that exist totally. as we've discussed in, totally. in, past, yeah, episodes. in past episodes. And, yeah. and we don't need to get into that now, yeah. but I think uh, if we're looking at it from the wide perspective of how it's supposed to yeah. be run, um, that that is one of the benefits. Yeah. And, you know, like we have here, uh, in some ways it also allows us to not have to be subject to the flaws of man. <laughs> so I think that that's another way that we can kind of understand the importance of, of our, our gospel as being part of the earth and not just the institution. Yeah. Because I, I mean, we all grew up in primary singing the wise man builds his house upon the the rock. the rock. Yeah. That song, right. And the, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Um, that I think what this, this regrounding process of reframing the gospel is something that is a universal principle, a universal pattern, a force of nature. It liberates it from human hands. Mm-hmm. And we all know that even in the doctrine and covenants section 121, God specifically calls out that any, anybody who gets any ounce of power is susceptible to corruption and to imperfection. Right. Yeah. And that, that, if we can ground our, our, our belief in the gospel in this universal pattern that is like as a frame of reference point, just like so much bigger than just this institution, it allows us to like get our sea legs when the institution starts rolling around and rocking around and making right. decisions that we might not feel good about. Right. Right. And it, it reminds me too of something that we learn that, I mean, even if you think back to the idea of creation um, and and the story of Adam and Eve, right? That it were we talking about this? How Satan is the is the one who says, yeah. "Oh, you you uh, you need to hide yourself from God. Yeah. You need to put on clothes so that you're not naked." Yeah. And um, and that it's him who kind of establishes that that shame and wanting to be hidden from God. Yeah. Um, as opposed to essentially being one with his the rest of his creation. Yeah. And, and that is something that I think, uh, kind of establishes that idea of being free from, from the human flaws, at least that we shouldn't take shame in, in creation and life and the things that God has given us to like enact his gospel. So in the Mormon language, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is often dubbed the doctrine, doctrine of Christ. Um, at least when I was a missionary, that was really heavy. That's really heavy in preach my gospel. Um, it's really heavy in, in the book of Mormon is this doctrine of Christ. And the doctrine of Christ is broken down into faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. Um, and so I thought would be, we should uh, uh, go through each one of these principles and kind of eco-theologize it and kind of have some, you know, some takes on each one of these. And, uh, you know, with this much larger perspective of, of the church belonging to the gospel rather than the gospel belonging to the earth. So let's start with faith. Okay. How do we, how do we reground faith 
Um, I mean, I think faith at its very core and at its very um, mm. nature is, I don't want to get too meta, but like the idea, well, faith is hoping in things that we cannot see, but are true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to the idea of the, the gospel as being part of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. We, we can't necessarily see the gospel as being part of the earth, right? Yeah. But we want to hope that that's the case. We want to hope that everything is living, um, by this law that, God has implemented, um, that, that nature follows a course, it follows a pattern. Um, and we hope for that, I think. Um, and so I think kind of regrounding our faith in that idea allows us to say, okay, if I can have faith that there's a pattern established in this, in this world, Mm -hmm. um, that both nature and the gospel follow, then I can take comfort or hope and have faith that I too will, um, you know, experience the resurrection, um, that, you know, there are going to be these cycles of certainty, uncertainty and refinement, um, and, and hopefully growth that comes from that. Yeah. But again, that, 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 that faith comes from, um, you know, believing in these patterns, even if we can't, physically see them. Yeah. Um, but at the same time that we can in some ways by re regrounding ourselves in a faith that's present within, or I mean, um, a gospel that's present within the earth, that these patterns, um, and these forms of life that we've talked about spring, summer, uh, that those give us kind of those visual aids to our faith as well. Yeah. Um, I think, I, to push that a little bit further, I think that, uh, it's not the, the earth is a symbol for us to be able to kind of see these things visually happening. Right. But I also think that the earth is an example to us of how to go along in this process because, so I think another, we, we, we think of faith as, as a, as I think we, we get trapped in this way of thinking of faith as just a, an intellectual assent to some external belief system. Yeah, right. That's true. Um, and I want to make faith much more robust than that. Um, that I, when I think of faith, I think of fidelity. I think of loyalty. I yeah. think of a willingness. It's a trustfulness. Uh, it's, it's an allowing. Um, and, uh, like, so I, I, the, I don't know if you know the poet Rilke. Yeah. Of course, you know, the poet Rilke. Um, let me, let me look up this poem really quick. Okay. Go to the limits of your longing by, by Ruka. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Book of Hours 159. I love that poem a lot. And my favorite line in that poem is, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Um, and that's what I think faith is, is it's uh, it's an allowing. It's a letting. It's a letting. It's a, It's the allowing of this cycle to happen to us, right? And it's not, it's not resisting to it. Um, so if I think 
how, how can I see the earth allowing? If I think of a waterfall, there are water molecules that are, that are just barreling towards the edge of this cliff, right? And the water molecules, especially if we're considering the last episode with Dan Weatherspoon, that, that as if that there is some, some principle of agency or intelligence in all things, that the universe, and even in Doctrine and Covenants 88, if the earth abides a law, then there is some capacity of obedience, right? Which right. implies agency. That at every moment, the earth is allowing itself to go through this process. And these water molecules are allowing themselves to just be hurled over the edge of this cliff. Right. right? And, uh, or that they're allowing themselves to be evaporated or they're allowing themselves to, to scatter light through them to create a rainbow. Right. Um, and that to me, that line, let everything happen to you, uh, beauty and terror, um, is a stance towards life of a full on embrace of everything that's happening to you. It's, 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 it's a stance of vulnerability of saying, I'm really happy right now. I'm going to feel the hell out of this, or I'm really sad right now. I'm going to feel the hell out of this Yeah. because I'm a, I'm human and I'm having an, a human experience and I want to, I want to embrace everything about this right now, rather than being distracted about it or turning away from it. Because I think if I am trying to numb myself to those experiences, I'm not going to allow myself to go through that process of change. Yeah. Well, it's not only believing, but it's trusting because yes. you have to believe in something. Well, we believe in Christ, right? Mm. But we also have to trust him that he's going to actually help us. Yeah. And, and that the atonement is real. So yeah, faith is both belief and trust in something. And yeah. I, I really like the way that you've kind of framed that, um, in the idea of kind of obedience as well. Uh, well, I mean, obedience to that law that yeah. like there's still agency. Um, and then there's this idea of obedience, but then that, that kind of trust in it as well. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's saying yes. Yeah. Right. That if uh, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, that that's ultimately her, her thing was when the, the angel Gabriel came to her and, and you know, the, 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 uh, annunciation, annunciation, I was going to say assumption, but that's certainly <laughs> not a word. Uh, the annunciation, um, that she gave the angel a yes, she yeah. said yes. And ultimately that's what God wants to hear from us is yes. Yeah. And yes is a stance towards our lives. It's a stance towards reality. It's a stance towards other people. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And it makes me think of um, Nathaniel. I just was reading about Nathaniel in the Bible yesterday, mm -hmm. who is Philip's friend, who Philip goes to and says, I met this man. Um, his name is Jesus. He's the one that prophets and the the law of Moses have testified or, or foreshadowed, you know, and and he says he comes from Nazareth. Um, and Nathaniel says, what good can come of Nazareth? But he still trusts Philip and goes with him. Um, and then he meets Jesus. Uh, and Jesus, of course, knows who he is, says he saw him under a fig tree. And Nathaniel says, oh, you're you're the, the son of God. Yeah. But it's that idea of, okay, maybe we're a little skeptical, um, but we believe and then we trust. And that's how we access that. And, and, you know, that's when we are able to, to recognize God. Yeah. And I think if you want to, 
if you need a real life example of what it means to say yes to life, just watch kids. Yeah. Watch four or five year olds, you know, that they are just nothing but an enthusiastic yes. Well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not all the time, especially to the vegetables, but like if you watch them play out in the backyard, it's nothing but yes. Totally. And I, I think that when, when Jesus is asking us to be childlike, that's what he's, he's asking us to have a beginner's mind and to just not be jaded. Cause I think jaded being jaded is the enemy of faithfulness. I think that leads us into repentance yeah. that if we're jaded, we're never going to be ready to repent yeah. or like ready to enter that cycle of disorder mm-hmm. um, or, or the element of the cycle of disorder. Um, and because we, we don't want to be uncomfortable that like yeah. if we, if we <laughs> stop saying yes, we're not pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and so we're never going to learn or grow because yeah. we'll never enter that, that, that element of repentance in that cycle. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I want to be sure to say that saying yes to everything doesn't mean that a no's can't exist. Right. But it's, it's, it's about learning the wisdom of where mm-hmm. no's ought to exist. Right. Right. And instead of saying no, because I am so comfortable with my certainty yeah. that I don't want to be put into disorder that I'm going to use no's as a, as a, uh, as a shield. Yeah. I think that's a good distinction, a good clarification of, yeah. you know, where we say yes and where we say no. Right. Um, yeah. So let's move into, uh, repentance. Um, I, uh, I think we need to de-traumatize this word a little bit. Yeah. I think, I think repentance kind of becomes at least mentally synonymous with like, uh, being reprimanded, doing something bad or doing something bad. Yeah. Yeah. That like, (laughs) Oh, I have to repent because I was, I sinned or I did something wrong. And I think, yes, but like who among us isn't sinning. Right. And like we sin every day, you know, countless times a day. Yeah. So I don't think we should like, let's just move on from it being something that's taboo or uh, that we need to be embarrassed or shame, right. ashamed of. Again, it goes back to that idea of God's not the one that wants us to feel shame. That's yeah. Satan. Yeah. Like we shouldn't be ashamed. God wants us to repent. Yeah. Um, There's something interesting said yesterday in my ward uh, where uh, a guy said, you know, every time I sin, uh, my first thought is that I want to pray. Uh, But then he said, you know, then I get that, that thought in my mind. Oh, no, wait, like I, I can't go to God. I'm not worthy enough right now. But again, it's that, that idea of shame. Um, that we can't go to God immediately. Um, and that, that stunts our repentance, that stunts our yeah. ability to enter into that um, growth cycle. And it's that no, it's instead of yes. Yeah. You know, if, if we're ready, you know, if we consistently say yes to repentance, then we don't have to worry as much about being stuck in that, yeah. in that cycle. I mean, it's a little scarier to say yes to that cycle. Oh, totally. Um, but it's, it's probably better for us. So I would say two things. Number one, um, that you, you hit it on the head that we have, 
we have it in our head that we, we get very shameful about our imperfection, right? We're very insecure about our stance towards God, right? Our own worthiness. And I'd say that we need to, we need to deconstruct that as a people. We really need to, I mean, that could be a whole episode on its own. Um, and I know many podcasts have done many, have done many episodes on that kind of stuff. Um, but imperfection is the name of the game on earth. You know, it's just Julian of Norwich. Uh, she was a Catholic mystic back in, I don't know, a really long time ago. She has this, this, this phrase called, uh, saying that sin is behoovely. Sin is necessary. Behoovely is an old word meaning necessary that is beneficial. And that, that, and this is not to say that like, Oh, go, go sin and do all the bad things that you want. Right. But it's, it's an acceptance that imperfection is the name of the game here. And that we came to earth to learn the lessons that imperfection can teach us. Mm-hmm. And it, it, we just need to say yes to that. We just need to say yes to our own imperfection and accept that God's, God's love is so the magnitude of God's love is so big that it can include our own imperfection. Yeah. It may, it also makes me think of, uh, and I feel like I've brought up Kierkegaard too much on this podcast. But uh, you, you're Kierkegaard. <laughs> I'm uh, Richard Rohr. I think we can bring up however many people. I'm like Wendell Berry. <laughs> no, but I, it makes me think, you know, in, in the context of, um, Julian Norwich. Julian Norwich. Yeah. yeah. That, that this idea of, you know, being able to understand that sin allows us to understand the importance of repentance too. And and we might even better rephrase it instead of sin, phrasing it death. Yeah. You know, that death, our own imperfection is, is a kind of symbol of death in some way. Right. So I think, I think we were too high centered on this idea of sin. Yeah. And even like Kierkegaard, I like the way that he understands sin, that it's not, uh, it's, it's like part of you that it's not this action necessarily that's like being taken and we don't have to get into it. But I, I do like this idea that, you know, the necessity for sin is so that we can recognize, uh, the, the beauty of faith and resurrection too, or the like beauty of grace. Yeah. And the beauty of grace and repentance and that he says sin again is necessary to become a self yeah. that like for us to be, who we are and to become the people that we are to refine ourselves again, to go back to that kind of refinement, uh, that sin is necessary. Yeah. Cause we'd be pretty bored. Like, I just don't think we would understand anything if we didn't sin. Cause we just wouldn't, we wouldn't. It, yeah. It would, I can't even conceive of a world where perfection as we, th- we traditionally think of it is possible. Right. Because then what the hell is there to do, honestly? honestly. <laughs> um, but I think the second thing is that we've made the mistake of making repentance about sin mm-hmm. instead of making repentance about life. Yeah. Right? Um, and that repentance, uh, as I said, it comes from the the Greek word. I'm just going to look that up right now just so that I can um, uh, be sure. Yep. Aha. Uh-huh. Great. It is a Greek word. It comes from the Greek word metanoia and metanoia means literally to change your mind. And so repentance is less this thing about, Oh, I sinned and I need to get that sin off of me. It's about, I, I am, I am oriented towards the world wrong and I need to change the way in which I'm, I need to change my stance on the world. I need to change my paradigm. I need to change my worldview so that I can operate towards myself, others, and the world 
better. Yeah. I mean, I hate to go back to evolution, but Do I it. think- We love it, evolution on the show. But I think in some ways, like repentance represents, uh, or, or evolution represents this idea of repentance mm-hmm. that, okay, that, that first thing didn't work so well. So we got to go back to the drawing board and maybe come up with something that does. Yeah. And then like evolution is representative of repentance yeah. <laughs> or that process of growing through, um, you know, repeatedly running into through trial and error. Yeah. Trial and error. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm, I've said many times this week that I'm a fan of the Miss Frizz, Miss Frizzle approach to life. Yeah. That we we got to make, get messy, make mistakes in order to learn anything. Totally. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, uh, I like thinking of repentance as transformation. And I think that there is certainly, um, the, in earlier, you know, younger, when, when, when we're younger, when we're kids and teenagers and stuff, we certainly do need to, you know, think of repentance as, oh, you see, you, you hate your brother. Like, let's, let's, let's re let's think, let's think about that. Let's, let's go through a repent a quote unquote repentance process. Right. Um, but I think when we get older, we need to let our understandings of these principles mature with us. Mm-hmm. And I think a more mature form of repentance is transformation. And I think we, we, we get too high centered on this idea of clean. We need to be clean before God. When I don't think that God cares as much about that. He cares that we're being transformed by his love. Yeah. And an kind of honest transformation too, um, because it's, you can, you can be clean, um, and not be transformed. Like you said, yeah. you know, that it's, it's not just an external representation. It's yeah. very much an internal change, yeah. um, and a change of and transformation of the heart. Well, and that's what Jesus was trying to do, right? He said yeah, exactly. the, king, the kingdom of God is inside of you. Yeah. He was, he was trying to liberate people and to, to transform the way that people were living in their lives so that they could see the kingdom of God all around them. Yeah. Instead of thinking that it was something that was in the future. It was something that was already here right now. And they just needed to transform their eyes in order to be able to see it. Where do we see baptism in the natural world? And how do we reground our understanding of baptism? I think baptism is one of the harder ones. I I would agree. (laughs) I think what baptism is, is it's a way for us to ritually live this process into reality. Because, you know, the baptism by immersion, if we, especially if we read Paul in Romans, it is an enactment of death and resurrection, Mm. that Paul says to lay your old man of sin down and to raise up a new man in Christ um, or a new person in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that I think that's what baptism is, is it's a way for us to, I think I might've mentioned this in the, the first episode, but it's a way for us to understand that our bodies are in on this as well, that this is a material experience, not just a, an intellectual or a spiritual experience, but, but this whole physicality is in on this experience as well. Yeah, I don't think we can separate the two. No. Um, And I think that's very evident from the fact that the earth has both a physical existence, obviously, but also Mm. a spiritual one, um, and that all things are created spiritually first. Right. Uh, But that, you know, what would be the point if our spirit didn't inhabit a body, that it's not just something to lay waste to? Right. Um, And I think 
while our our ordinance of baptism is a ritualized living this into the world, I think what that points us to is that we need to be living this this process into our worlds. Right. And you know that this the baptism is a symbol for that, but that in our own worlds in our own lives we need to be hands on helping the world through this process. And whether that means activism, whether that means getting involved with issues that you care about or taking muffins to a neighbor, right? That that's, that's getting hands on. And that's what baptism is, is a symbol for uh, living this process into reality. Mm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Any other on baptism? No. Oh, I did have one. Okay. So this summer, my nieces and nephews are getting baptized. Yeah, they're they're or my two oldest ones are turning are turning eight, um, and uh, I have been thinking like, what would what would I tell them about baptism, right? And uh, just like how I, how with repentance, I think we've we've made the mistake of making repentance about sin. Mm-hmm. I think we've also made that same mistake with baptism. We've yeah. made baptism about sin and about our sinfulness, and that baptism washes our sins away. And I don't like that anymore. Um, and that if I were to start start fresh with someone, I would, I think what baptism can be is it's a ritualized, um, ritual a ritualized way of joining the family, right? It's it's accepting the or it's it's a ritualization of participating in the divine nature, mm-hmm. right? And joining the fam the divine family of of God, right? Um, but I would I would expand that family to be the family of things. Like what's that, what's that Mary, uh, Mary Oliver poem, the, the wild geese poem. Do you want to read that one? I don't know that one. You don't? No. Oh my gosh. Prepare to have your, just Google wild geese, Mary Oliver. Prepare to have your mind melted. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair. Yours and I will tell you mine. Um, Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, The world offers itself to your imagination, calls you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Oh, that's delightful. That is delightful. I love that. Yeah, so I would say that baptism is a way of ritualizing our membership in the family of things. Yeah. And that it, especially like if we consider we we baptize children when they're eight, right? Mm -hmm. When you're eight, you finally have an understanding of what your family is. Yeah. Right. Your family is your siblings and your parents and maybe some cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff. But I'd say that baptism is a way of expanding the circle of that family to include much more. And to and I would say beyond just your neighbors and your ward members and your community, but also to include your the trees in your yard, the the grass, the the little squirrels or the birds. Right. That those are all a part. You are a member of the family of things Mm -hmm. and that the baptism is our initiation into that family. Not that, not that we weren't members of that family before our baptism, but that our baptism is a way of ritualizing and initiating that. Right. And I think we do that already by saying like, Oh, welcome. You know, you are now a member of the congregation, Mm -hmm. but I think like, let's expand that to include, 
not just the congregation, but also, like you said, you know, a member of all things, a member of all creation. And like you said, not that you're not prior to that, but that your understanding of that grows as being a literal member of it. No, I, I didn't actually make that, that, that realization or that connection that when we're baptized, we become members of of the the community of the church. Right. And that, what we're asking is simply to expand that circle even wider even greater, yeah. uh, to include the family of all things. And like, ah, just that, just that line that, uh, like the wild geese har- or the, the world offers itself to your imagination and calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Oh yeah. My announcing gosh. your place. It's, oh my gosh. Yeah. It just feels so good. And that, you know, if I can, even that, that Robin that wakes me up every morning because it's sitting on my neighbor's roof doing his little Robin call, it's announcing my place in the family of things. Yeah. I just, oh my gosh, it, it melts me, melts me. What All about right. the Holy Ghost? Okay. This is one I'm excited to talk about. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about this one because, um, because of our conversation with Dan Weatherspoon. Yeah. So, uh, just, uh, that was literally the last episode that our listeners listened to. Um, we talked about kind of these nature mystical experiences, right? And we mm-hmm. talked about how the universe is saturated with divine light and the divine presence. Um, and I think that the gift of the Holy ghost, cause I think just like how I don't think we understand the light of Christ very well, I don't think we understand the, the gift of the Holy Ghost very well. So uh, how, how is it explained to you? <laughs> I think the gift of the Holy Ghost was kind of this like abstract mm-hmm. thing that was presented to me in a way that was like, okay, now you can call, like you have this companion, but it's a companion that's only there you know, if you're doing good, yeah. the companion will leave you um, if you sin or if you're not, you know, doing what you should be doing. Right. But that it's also this companion that you can call upon uh, t- to access God. Yeah. Um, And so in some ways it was kind of like this nice thing to know that, you know, you're never alone. But it was also like pretty abstract to understand as an eight-year-old at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because of that. I don't think we as a community have really matured our understanding of what the gift of the Holy ghost means because it's supposed to be something different than the light of Christ. And yet it's kind of like our conscious, our conscience. Yeah. You're right. See, I just, yeah. Or is it like this weather vane that, that, that tells us whether or not we're good. Yeah. I don't know. Right. I, I don't know even if I've thought about it that much, like since, since we were eight. It. Like, I think, yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, is that my conscience? Is it the Holy Ghost? Yeah. Um, do I even need to distinguish between the two? Is it the voice inside my head? You know, there are all these things mm-hmm. that that maybe we don't really understand about it. Yeah. Um, I think a more mature understanding of the Holy Ghost, as well as a regrounded understanding of the Holy Ghost, is especially in the context of our conversation we had with Dan is it's a transforming of the eyes. Mm. And, I, and it, I mean, the eyes is like the way that we see the world. Yeah. Right. So there's this, uh, this poem by, 
Elizabeth, we've, we've referenced a poem now almost every time, yeah. which I think is fun, um, by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And it, it's, uh, I don't know what it's called, but here's, here's it, here it is. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. And I, I love that because I want to see the, every common bush afire. I want to see the, the, I mean, and like on fire in quotes being like the divine fire, like, like Moses with the, the, uh, the burning bush, right? The, he saw the bush on fire with God. Yeah. And I think that the gift of the Holy ghost is if we see, if we, especially if we think of fire as a refining, as a refining agent, um, the, the baptism of by water, but the Holy ghost is a baptism by fire. And if we think of this resurrection, this resurrection journey, that if we've been remade, we, we see the world, we see the divine burning in the world, right? We mm-hmm. see every common bush afire with God and common, especially that even the mundane, and this is something we've talked about all the time in the podcast is that yeah. even the mundane aspects of reality are saturated with divine potential. Yeah, that's so true. I love the idea of the Holy Ghost as being like a new set of eyes because it goes back to that idea of through repentance, we mm-hmm. we have this paradigm shift. Yeah. Um, and so it only makes sense that the Holy Ghost kind of offers us that opportunity to now do that mm-hmm. um, or to have that kind of a better understanding of how to access that paradigm shift. Right. Cause I think, I think my understanding of the, the doctrine of Christ was that these steps are kind of arbitrarily assembled, mm-hmm. but the way that we've been talking, it feels like they're each flowing into one another. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, so if I've said yes to this cycle of, of life, death and resurrection, and I've trusted myself to it and gone through it and lived it into my reality, the natural, the natural, outgrowth of that is that my eyes have been changed to the world and that I can see God in all things. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Cause yeah, maybe a little disjointed before, like not understanding that each kind of leads into, it's a progression. Yeah, It's not just like, uh, first you do this. Okay. Yeah. That's done now. Okay. Yeah. But a true progression that one leads into the other and pretty it's a, seamlessly. It's a natural progression too. Yeah. And it's, and, and by natural, I mean that it's, it's, it's expected. Mm-hmm. It's just something that it's a byproduct of the thing that came before it. Right. Um, the, I, I've said before that I'm a huge fan of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the, one of the Hindu books of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the, the the central tenets of Hindu spirituality is that the greatest illusion in the world is that of separation, right? And so if if who we were before this process was seeing the world very disjointed, we saw ourselves as an individual disconnected from everything. And then this process reconnects us to the family of things, right? Mm-hmm. That we find ourselves in the family of things that we've that helps us overcome this illusion of separation. And we see ourselves instead in the embedded ecology of all things. Um, and one of my favorite verses, if, you know, if, you know, for Joseph Smith, the, there's never been a verse that came stronger to him than the James one five, which is that uh, if any men lack wisdom, let him ask of God, then the equivalent for me would be this verse in the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita that says, 
there's two of them that says one is uh, they're wise who see themselves in all things and all things in them. And then the other one is that just as uh, a reservoir is useless in a flood, so is scripture useless in a, in a man or woman who can see God in all things. And I, those, those two, like they obliterated my brain when I read them um, because it, it trans, it helped my eyes. What am I trying to say? It offered you a new pair of eyes. <laughs> yeah. So these verses offered me a new pair of eyes to see the world. And I've never been the same since um, that I, you know, we've made, we've made common or frequent callbacks throughout this entire season of all things can be scripture to you, mm-hmm. right? That we might have capital S standard work scripture, right? but I think we, we keep saying that is because I've, I've experienced the world as scripture. I've experienced the book of nature. I've experienced God in all things. Right. And so we're, we keep, we keep coming back to that because I think that that's what the gift of the Holy ghost is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be the transforming agent that ch- changes the way that we interact in relationship with all things. Yeah. And I want to, I want to emphasize that idea of, uh, all things, like being part of all things. Um, I think Wendell Berry, obviously, just to quote another one of my faves, <laughs> but he, he has this idea that, you know, healing is impossible in loneliness. Um, Ooh. and that it, it's the opposite, uh, of loneliness healing is, um, but that like conviviality is healing. Mm. Um, and that there's this one specific line where he says to be healed, we must come with all the other creatures to the feast of creation <sighs> together the above two description. Well, yeah. So, so just this idea of, you know, coming together, um, with all other creations, uh, to be able to be healed. And, and that that's like our, our total understanding of the gospel, you know, that we, we come together through this healing with one another, um, and that we can't do it independently from one another. Um, and that, that, you know, baptism and then receiving the Holy ghost offers us that opportunity. First we join the family of all things. So we come together in that, that convivial, um, you know, opportunity. Uh, and then the Holy ghost offers us that opportunity to see those things in that way. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. This is so great. I'm really, I'm really pleased. Um, anything else for the Holy ghost? No. All right. Uh, let's the final stage enduring to the end. Yeah. Now I'm not going to lie. That sounds like it sucks. Yeah. Well, I think again, (laughs) it like, I think we get so focused on what's ahead of us Mm -hmm. instead of allowing the things of the earth to be our present. Um, we get, we get so hyper-focused on what's after this that we lose our sense of, of presence here on earth Yeah. or, or, you know, we think of enduring as like this state of suffering until we're finally relieved of it. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case either. I think what enduring to the end to me, how I reframe that is just living your life, right? That what, if we've, if we've gone through this cycle and by the way, this cycle is not something you do once, 
right? Baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost might be something that you ritually do once, but it's like this cycle of life, death, and resurrection is a cycle. It's a way of living your entire life. And so it's something that you you ought to go through time and time again, many, 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 many ways. Um, and when we're baptized and we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and we feel ourselves in the family of all things, what that does is it, well, what it ought to do is eliminate our anxiety about our standing before God, right? I've encountered so many people in the last couple of weeks who are afraid of God. They're afraid of not measuring up, right? And I think that genuine experiences like the ones we've been talking about obliterate our self-anxiety about where our standing in things, right? That if we can ex- if we can experience ourselves as members of the family of all things, we can we can relax. We can just be good because feeling good or because being good feels good and we don't have yeah. to be good to get a reward. We're just good because being good feel, feels good. Yeah, I agree. And I think we need to reframe. I, I think enduring to the end also yeah. <laughs> needs a reframing. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, let's put on, like now that we have the Holy Ghost, let's look at this in a, through mm-hmm. a new perspective that enduring doesn't have to mean it's like literal a denotation right. that, that, you know, it's just suffering with patience or, um, that it's kind of living with tolerance. We can make it so much more than that. Um, and that probably there are going to be moments where maybe we need to endure them. Yeah. Uh, but that we can reframe our life to be so much more than just uh, like something we endure. Yeah. I might rephrase it instead of en- enduring, participating until yeah. the end. The, yeah. It's it's being engaged until the end. It's not checking out because it's right. like, oh, I've got all my ordinances done. I guess it's just just riding the <laughs> clock out until I'm dead and then resurrected, right? right. It's, it's remaining engaged until the end. It's yeah. remaining saying yes until the end. Yeah, and participating in the full measure of creation until yeah. the end. Because again, you know, each of us have our purpose and, and we need to fill the measure of our creation. And that's not just four tiny tick boxes that are, <laughs> you know, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. Right. No, there's, there's so much more to that. Yeah. There's so much more nuance. Um, and then again, you know, joining the family of all things, no one wants the mooch. We, we want to make sure that we're, you know, actively participating. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like, joining the current. It's like we've joined the current, yeah. right? Of yeah. the goodness, right? God called the earth very good. Very good. And we've joined that and there's an energy and a flow to it. And we're like, it's like in Finding Nemo where they join the EAC or the East Australian current, right? Yeah. And they're, and they're flowing along inside that current. And I think that's what, that's what enduring to the end is. We found the flow and it's about staying in that flow Yeah. and it's about living your life, living your life without that, that, that eternal anxiety and letting your life be about itself rather than your life about something else. Yeah. Cause the more you, the more you live your life thinking it's about trying to get something, the more anxiety you're going to produce. And if you just let your life be about living your life right now, because your life is a gift. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Feels so good. Feels good. (laughs) Now we're re-energized. You're ready to take on life. The end. With some sea turtles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I do think that's like a good kind of culmination, natural culmination to the episode. Yeah. That, yeah, we don't have to just, these are all tools 
that are accessible through, you know, the gospel that is the earth yeah. uh, that we have at our disposal um, that we can continue to, to utilize and that bring us hope yeah. as well. They're not stagnant. We're not stagnant. Yeah. And that is really that ultimately this resurrection journey is about change mm-hmm. and what that is the best news on earth that I don't have to be who I was when I was a teenager. Right. Cause I was kind of a pill when I was a teenager. I don't even want to think. Remember I said I haven't been back to my high school. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want to think about it. Yeah. So it's, it, that is the miracle of the universe is that, is that change happens and that change trusted can be moving forward. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors. Consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth.